Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. G'day, welcome to Living the Dream podcast. You're with Dave. Hello everyone. And I'm John, Dave, at with Sober Senses on Twitter. I'm at John Pacini on that particular social media device. We don't have any other... We don't. I'm not. I'm you have a Facebook page. I Everyone do. Like our Facebook page if you don't already. Yeah, yeah, totally. That, I, I, I try to do humorous things every once in a while, but mostly I don't think they might not be as funny as I <laughs> We'll find out. So people can stay in touch with the show and hear a gag. Yeah. And, yeah. Also, and also solicit, that's, that's solicit feedback, right? right? Like hmm? um, we have been asking people ideas for future shows and so if you've got ideas for future shows you can put them on the Facebook page I don't think we've actually actually taken up any of those future shows in a concrete form and actually done them yet but no. at least we've got the, the attention to do so yeah yeah this is all part of brand building anyway you know, we're, <laughs> we're engaging our we're engaging our clientele you know in various ways you know yep um, John did you speaking of pop before we get into the show and speaking of podcasts did you listen to the new Australian left-wing Jewish podcast uh, Muzzle Tov cocktail at all a little bit yes it's Max Kaiser um, yeah it's Matt I think it's two episodes it's really brilliant I think if people like this show that they should certainly um, tune in and listen to Max's yep. show as well I'm really excited that there's more kind of um, radical and anti-capitalist podcasts starting i think you know yep. that like too much we're like in anti-capitalist circles we write dense treaties which you know mm -hmm. i do and and you do yep. but you know <laughs> we might as well embrace new media like audio mm -hmm. recordings yeah no, and we can challenge the dominance of progressive podcasts you prepare oh yeah don't get me started all right so today's podcast what we wanted to talk about was uh the changes to the penalty rates and i guess like the struggle against those changes to the penalty rates and uh also i think a, a series of kind of fights that seem to be emerging at the moment or at least signs of contestation around questions of labor and kind of think about and un unpick it what do you reckon john Sounds exciting. I'm excited. You're excited? All right. Well, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with a, with a struggle or with a, the um, penalty rates decision or what? <coughs> well, should we start big picture and we'll start with this kind of, I don't know, I've seen big picture equals like big politics, so we should talk about the uh, the penalty rates thing and then kind of get into, I guess, what okay, that means, good. I guess, in various perspectives. We've got to lay the foundations maybe. You know? cool. Well, but so... So at the end, at the end of February, the Fair Work Commission, um, as part of, it seemed that as part of their four-year review, I think it is of the award. And I read some comment today that even though they're meant to review every, the awards every four years, it's such a difficult and long drawn-out process that it pretty much happens constantly. But anyway, like the, as part of their four-year review of the of the award, um, has made the decision to cut penalty rates for uh, a number of different awards for Sundays and for public holidays. So for those people that don't know, maybe international listeners or the like, penalty rates are, are payments that people receive, basically an enlarged payment for working antisocial hours. Mm. So the logic of penalty rates in the past was simultaneously to compensate workers for working in antisocial hours 
hours, but also dis to discourage employers from employing people in those hours. And one of the things about the Fair Work Commission decision was that they've said, well, that second element about discouraging people um, from working those hours is no longer applicable. And as we'll see, it's quite important to the decision itself. So if you don't mind, John, I'll just go through what, those, what the cuts were. Yeah. So to the hospitality hospitality award for the Sunday penalty rate, it went from 175% of the, you know, the the award wage to 150%. For the fast food award, it went from 100 for full-time and part-time employees, it went from 150% to 125%. For casual employees, it went from 175% to 150%. For the retail award, it went from 200% to 150% for full-time and part-time employees. For casual employees, it went from 200% to 175%. For full-time and part-time employees, it went from 200% to 150%. And from casual employees, it went from 200 25% to 175%. Mm. And then for public holidays, um, they, they instituted the same, they instituted changes again. So mm. for the hospitality award, uh, it went from 250% to 225% for full and part-time. For casuals, it went from 275% to 250%. For the restaurant award, for full-time and part-time, it went from 250 to 225%. For casuals, it stayed at 225%. There were no changes to the club award. For the retail award, it went from 250% to 225% for full and part-time. For casuals, it, it went from 275% to 250%. And then those same figures for the fast food award and for the pharmacy award but they made a decision not to change the kind of antisocial hours that the pharmacy award applies to so in summary like considerable changes to the pays that those people in what we're basically call i guess the service sector industries yeah receive on sundays mm -hmm. um what does that mean for people well we we've heard kind of anecdotally um, quotes of up to, you know, people, it might mean like $6,000 less a year in regards to their income. Mm -hmm. the, the Fair Work Commission in their decision themselves, you know, acknowledge that in these industries, the majority of people work um, on the weekends. Mm. So, you know, that the, these penalty rates have become a substantial part of the mm. income um, that, that people in these industries receive. And yep. interestingly, that was like part of the logic that was used to actually undermine the case for penalty rates or to justify the cuts. Yeah. You know, because the, like it's, have you had a look, had a chance to have a look at the, at the decision? I've had a look at the decision, but I've followed a bit of the coverage. Yeah, so like I've, I've only read the summary of the decision. Yeah. So that's, there's like, you know, it's 700 pages long, but... Basically, it kind of there's two points that it really kind of says this is why we would do it, um, like yeah, well, one a community expectation, community standards. Yeah, yeah. So they were basically saying that you know um, that working on Sunday still has a disutility compared to working on Saturday, but it's less because it's become more accepted that things are open on Sundays. Mm. And then they also accepted that um, increased the the level of penalty rates pr 
probably restricts training hours, lowers staff levels and places restrictions on the types and range of services provided. And therefore, if the wages were made yep. cheaper, this would increase trading hours on Sundays and public holidays, lead to a reduction in hours worked by some operators, and also increase the level of, and range of services. So the logic, and they kind of say that this is, like they admit, the Fair Work Commission admits, like this will be uneven. And, um, you know, they can't really guarantee it's happening, but their assumption is, like, the wage bill will, will stay the same. Mm. It's just that, that that bill will then be used to employ either the same people for longer or include more people um, to, be, to be hired. What I think um, hasn't been really covered so far is that the you know and I think this is kind of interesting to talk about too is also in this decision they did acknowledge that obviously this could have a serious impact on people's take home wages right so um, what they what they are saying yeah. then in the in the transfer in the process of this transformation and they're recommending that this start to be introduced by the beginning of by the middle of the year that some other steps are kind of brought in to offset these pay cuts. So they're talking, some of the things they talk about is one thing is a take-home pay order, which I assume is meant to say that people's actual final take-home pay is not meant to be less than what it was before the penalty rates were cut. But they also talk about that what they could do is increase a loading across the hourly wage for the industry on a whole. So... This would be that the standard hourly wage you get for working in these industries would increase to reflect that these industries, as per normal, involves working in antisocial hours. And they also yeah. make this really interesting point that actually if you look at the industry, um, basically the Fair Work Ombudsman has pointed yeah. out that the level of non-compliance in hospitality and retail is huge, that basically people yeah. don't pay penalty rates anyway. So no. if what you do is re reduce penalty rates, then increase um, the loading, that you'd actually get a higher rate of compliance and maybe some higher take-home pay for people too. So that's the decision as, as far as I understand it. So it doesn't really entirely make sense to sort of change your policies because people aren't listening to you. <laughs> like, you know, like, can you just try to fix compliance? Like, why don't you enforce it? It seems like a compliance side issue. Yeah, yeah totally. why don't you just, like, have, like, to go and make it work, you know? Yeah. That's clearly not, not what they're interested in. There's a few things that are interesting about that. The whole idea of kind of, the, you know, you can mitigate the effects by having um, higher wages is is always based around some sort of you know liberal concept of this middle ground person pretty much like you can't say that everyone like what about someone who only works Sundays mm. you know what you lift their hourly rate to it's probably not going to reflect their actual take home wage right yeah it's all, you're always going to have people who lose out so this idea that no one will be worse off this whole like because all this stuff theoretically with fair work is this concept of the no disadvantage test yeah better off overall yeah the better off overall test you know and and you know, like this is all like gets caught up in legalisms and the rule of rule of law kind of stuff. It's kind of fairly messy. And the other thing about it, you know, you go through all these statistics and everything about, you know, this isn't like a huge savage cut mm -hmm. to working wages in a way. Like this is kind of like a relatively minor adjustment, and mm -hmm. it doesn't affect a huge number of people. As we as has been discussed, like Coles and all these other. They already abolished these ways. They already abolished penalty rates ages ago, at the behest of the SDA. 
and various other type, various other kind of quizzing unions. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think different things that are. So this is kind of like maybe the opening salvo in a broader way struggle by the right to undermine working conditions. But then I kind of doubt that because there doesn't seem to be any real political capital on the right okay. to that attack. Okay, the, the right the, is trying to distance itself from this move. See, there's a number of different things that I think I want to talk about from those points that I think are interesting, and they reflect kind of how the national discussions been got been been going on. So, you know, the the Labor Party and the trade union leadership, and look, I I really want to kind of like nail my colours to the wall or to the flag, whatever the term yeah. is used here. And so, like, obviously, I oppose this. This is an attack on a specific group of workers as an attack on kind of the class on a whole, right? We've got to kind of yeah. think about what that means. Yeah. But I don't think opposing it means that we should be dishonest in our understanding or in how we explain that understanding to the class as a whole, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so, oh, so no, this, that's what I'm saying. So this, this has been like framed. I'm not saying you were, but like in no. terms of like the ALP and the union leadership really want to identify this as like a product of Malcolm Turnbull. So you get all this, you know, this coverage that is Malcolm Turnbull has cut penalty rates. Well, he hasn't cut penalty rates. The Fair Work Commission has cut penalty rates. And there's two things to start talking about. First of all, the Fair Work Commission was the product of the Rudd-Gillard government that came out of... um, the your your, yeah, yeah your, the your rights at work struggle. So you know, Rob, friend of the show, you mm. know, has made the comment that you know, as part of what you hear from the Labor Party and from the trade unions is, oh, we need a your rights at work style struggle. So you're like, hang on, you need a your rights at work style struggle against the very thing that the your mm. rights at work um, struggle gave us, which was the Fair Work Commission. You know, and also obviously the Fair Work Work Act massively criminalises industrial action as well. And mm. we should talk about Sally McManus, new head of the ACTU, her comments about that. But the other thing that's important too is that a lot of the other coverage is, you know, the, the response that you get from Labor Party supporters and the mainstream of the trade unions is like, okay, fair cop, you know, the, the Fair Work Commission is a product of... Um, of of the Labor government, but it's been stacked with right-wingers, right? Yeah. I don't actually think that's true. So no. the current head of the Fair Work Commission, who sat yeah. on this decision, yeah. so Chief Justice Ross, is a yeah. former assistant secretary of the ACTU. Yeah. Right? And yeah. And in January this year, someone who was clearly on the political right, Graham Watson, who's part of the Fair Work Commission, resigned from the Fair Work Commission, complaining that under Fair Work Commission President Ian Ross, it had been too union-friendly and dominated by the unions. So I think, you know, like, we can't understand this necessarily as a product of the right, but actually a more complicated story, which is about the long Australian tradition of arbitration. Yeah. And the kind of unfolding of industrial relations in Australia, like since the mm. 1890s, where mm. the mainstream of the um, Labor movement, the ACTU and the Labor Party, mm. have um, directed people's hopes towards arbitration. And arbitration is always, you know, what's it about? It's about like managing class conflict in the greater mm. 
interest of the nation state, which means for the greater interests of capital accumulation in the nation state. Mm. And that's what we're seeing playing out here. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's right. I mean, the way that, yeah, to, to talk about, because Fair Work Commission is an independent body. It kind of exists in a way, kind of separate in the way the Productivity Commission is a separate body as well. Mm. You know? So it functions as a way of kind of like a way of articulating different ideas about capitalism, how capitalism is run. And yeah, so what, what you know, obviously we've got, a, this is a different take on arbitration in a way because the arbitration system existed kind of from 1907 and it's officially brought in with the harvester judgment. Um, but the arbitration system hasn't really functioned properly in Australia for a long time. You know, like there's been various, you know, like particularly because the Labor Party has brought in things like the enterprise bargaining agreements and whatnot, which undermine mm-hmm. the way that this kind of state way setting is supposed to work. Like, so there's already some, this is, you know, Labor's attempts to modernize, which is tied into the Accords and the Accord in 83 and a bunch of other things is trying to like modernize the workforce is like part of exchanges with capital. Mm-hmm. So I guess it, yeah, there, no. there's two things that you, what you're saying is really striking for me. So I'll just make sure that I've got my kind of history right. I thought, because I've just been trying to get a quick understanding of it. So there's a wave of kind of struggles in the 1890s that it, even though, you know, our side is, is defeated, yeah. basically a, an idea develops um, that some form of arbitration, so forcible negotiation between labour and capital is better than... Um, the kind of disruption caused by class struggle. And then that harvester decision, what year is that? Did you say 1907? So yeah. that establishes the yes. idea that there should be a kind of a, like a, a living wage, right? Is that right? Yeah, in a way, yeah, that's right. I mean, it basically just the, the harvester judgment in a way just kind of concretizes already existing ideas of, 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 of arbitration, ideas of the mm. unions and we'll sit down together because, you know, the Australian trade union movement Historically, it's never been that adverse to sitting down with the employers. It's never been particularly class struggle heavy, except for in certain sectors. Mm-hmm. The ACTU actually has always been the left, was, was has historically been on the left, and, and the communists more, the communist mm. side of the trade union movement. So, interesting to see where they line up today. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 um, the, the arbitration system has existed and as a way, I guess, of, of, of kind of mediating conflicts that arose in the, as you say, in the 1890s, particularly with the Shearer's strikes. And this leads to the creation of the Labour Party, which then leads to the rise of official arbitration under one of the first Labour governments, under the Labour governments um, in, in 1907. And, you know, the guy who, who, um, who, who passed these laws, the, the, passed the, the harvester judgment, I forget the, the, um, the justice's name now, um, but he's kind of like seen by the far right who are actually ideologically committed, like the HR Nichols Society, mm. people who are actually ideologically committed to the destruction of the arbitration system, mm-hmm. like the Labour Party, who are just happy to destroy it kind of slowly. They actually see this guy whose name I forget, unfortunately, as like the guy who destroyed Australia. And it's, mm. you know, we're still living with, you know, the, the great mistake that was the harvested judgment, you know, the entrenchment of union power at the centre of Australian society. The Industrial Relations Club was the term. Yeah, that's right. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The HR, I remember from, you know, like um, the HR Nichols Society and the Australian New Right used to use. So, but 
and then I guess that that kind of holds sway over through most of the 20th century and then is thrown into crisis by the struggles of the 60s and 70s is my understanding of it. Um, bit when weight you know kind of like all around the world wage growth begins to massively outstrip productivity and then that wage growth is held in is basically only broken through the accord between the ALP and the ACTU yeah um, which is opens the door by the early 90s to enterprise bargaining and then the, the Howard government in 2000 uh, like um, brings through an industrial relation act in 96 and then um, mm. work choices I think in 2004 which tries to push even further to, to individual um, contracts and then mm. with the rise of the Rudd Gillard government you have fair work which shifts the majority of awards I think basically everything except public sector state public sector awards to a federal level, simplifies them, the continues modern, the... Sorry, what was that, John? They're called modern awards. Yeah, they're modern awards. Modernised them, and there's only like 20-something awards now, and there used to be several hundred, mm-hmm. and federal awards um, yeah. across the... It was very, very messy. But yeah, the interesting thing, I guess, to go back and just to think about the 1980s, the early 1980s in particular, yeah, there were these struggles in the 60s and 70s which led to massive explosions in wage growth. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't actually leading to increases in standards of living for workers because with wage growth, there was also massive inflation. Yeah. So what Liz Humphrey particularly argues um, in her work about the Accord, um, which we can link to, is basically that labor, the left in the union movement didn't really know what to do with that fact. Yeah. The, the, the historic process of fighting for wages rather than fighting for, you know, workers' control of industry or whatever, which was never sort of, which was there, but was, was always like a secondary concern for some mm-hmm. years only. You know, that system broke. Mm-hmm. The system actually like fighting for wage growth in, in terms of these large unionized workforces. Like it just wasn't leading. So the accord seemed quite like a logical thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we'll get, you know, Scandinavian style welfare state. Yeah. It was effectively what was promised. Never delivered, of course. So I think there's two th- that's super interesting, right? Like, I think that's pretty much the story about how Keynesianism and the Fordist Compromise was kind of broken throughout the Western world. Mm. And then the failure of Keynesianism, which was also an attempt to manage class conflict, right, by um, trading productivity for, uh, for wage growth, wage growth for productivity, was yeah. broken by struggle itself. But it also mm. kind of brings to... Um, the matter that a very interesting article that was published in Overland, the problem with join your union, written by mm. friends of the show Max and Joanna, mm. um, which has been a really interesting article, which has basically said, look, you know, in the response to the penalty rates uh, decision, the main kind of argument we're hearing is now this is why you've got to join your union, right? And Max and Joanna say, all right. Like, we're unionists, we're members of our union, we're all, you know, we're, when you work, we recognise that power, but let's, let's mm. face that at the moment, the material reality, which is union membership has collapsed and um, wage growth is at a record low, and that, that's true. Um, the productivity, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia in their latest bulletin just published more research that said that wage rises in wages are now less frequent than for a considerable long period of time and mm. the amount they grow is less. You know, the graph is like two lines going down. It's all a bit droopy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they, 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 lo- they locate this as the political relationship between the ACTU and the Labor Party yeah. in the form of the accord 
for being this reason. My personal feeling now is actually I think we've got to go back to 1890. This is a deeper historical current um, mm-hmm. about the rise of legalism. And then the, the, therefore their conclusion is, you know, like, yeah. okay, you've got a two-pronged fight. If you join your union, you've got to fight in the union mm-hmm. um, for political in- independence, right, mm-hmm. or perhaps form your own kind of struggle as well because this symbiosis between the union movement and um, b- between the Labor Party is ultimately really destructive for the class, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, thinking about the long history, I'm being nerdy here, but going back even further, if you want to think about, I guess, the arbitration system exists in Australia and is enforced by what was called the penal laws, mm-hmm. which basically meant that striking was illegal. Unless you had like very specific set, set reasons to do so, I'm not entirely sure, but basically the penal laws made striking illegal. So then in 1969, in a very famous incident, Clary O'Shea, the Maoist, mm. the tramways union in Victoria, was put in jail for going on strike illegally. He was mm-hmm. jailed under the penal clause and a million workers walked out. That's insane. And they stopped at work for like ages in Victoria, shut down work for ages and eventually like a helpful benefactor, anonymous benefactor paid him, paid his like bail. What's the <laughs> theories about who that like, benefactor was? Yeah, there are a few. I haven't, I'm not sure. Humphrey's probably a good person to ask. Yeah, I, I remember like hearing some stories that was probably the state who did it because they just, you know, wanted to stop. Like the, that's, I think the thing that's so amazing about those stories is about how it sounds like another world. Yeah. Right? Like in yeah. terms of like, if you think about, you know, within a lot of people's living memories, the level of organisation and struggle in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s yeah. is so different from what there is today. Mm. Like yeah. there's certainly been like classic industrial battles in the last yeah. couple of years, but the last kind of national level fight was the MUA dispute in 1998, yeah. right? Yeah. And the Fair Work Act is the laws that helps maintain that quietism by the criminalisation of industrial action outside mm. of, um, yeah. you know, the enterprise bargaining um, yeah, period. It's, it's the return to the penal clauses at the behest of the of the labour movement. Mm. Which, and, the, you know, the, the, the penal clauses were broken by left unions and by the Communist Party, by Communist Party unions and mm. the splinters of that, you know, and the MUA dispute probably no coincidence, was the last, was a fight with the last communist trade union Mm -hmm. Australia, of course, as well, you know. Well, I guess, like, you know, like, I'm, I could think about, you know, rabbiting on about the history of arbitration longer, and I guess, but we should move on to talking about struggles around this, both what's been happening against uh, penalty rates, but also Sally McManus's comments about breaking the law, because that seems really relevant. But the thing is, before we just blame the trade unions, I've been thinking a lot about the concept of class composition, which isn't a surprise because it's such an important concept to the Italian Marxist traditions that has influenced me so much. Mm. But often one of the ways that class composition is thought about is just, you know, the kind of about the the relationship between how the working class exists and the technical compositions of work. But Mm. it often involves ideas. It often wants to talk about the level of ideas in the class and the level of organisation too. And I think this deep vein of legalism is Mm -hmm. bigger than the trade unions, right? Like it's, it's too easy just to blame the trade union leadership. I like, you know, Rob, mm. second mention, friend of the show, yeah. um, talks about, you know, how 
particularly for people who work in the food industry, because mm. United Voice, when, when he was working in cafes, you could only be a supporting member where you could mm. pay your membership, but they wouldn't do anything to protect you. Um, <laughs> Mind-blowing, right? Yeah. would say that people would rather contact the Fair Work Ombudsman more than the union because mm. the Fair Work Ombudsman has more power. Yeah. Right? There's a reality to it. Like this legalism is like there's a deep vein of it because it's one of the few ways in our kind of individualised existence that we can attempt to mobilise any power. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and certainly that was the way I used to work at the forerunner to that when it was all still state government uh, run. I used to work in that. And certainly, you know, like it's a, you know, you'd, you'd get calls from, you know, backpackers who were like, mm. foreign backpackers who've been ripped off and they were like, I can't believe you guys have this system. This is amazing. <laughs> How does everybody have this system, you know? And I mean, it is, you know, like, there's this whole kind of concept and it's a very deep ideological concept that Australia is the working man's paradise mm. and Australia of the fair go and that the government's role is to ensure that that is the case. Mm. And in fact, for a country that's had such a significant trade union movement, we have very little to show for it concretely. Like in terms of, if you want to, if you want to go back to Scandinavia, you know, like or Germany even, you know, where there's, this trade unions develop later. Mm. They have much higher level of trade union one, like kind of a social welfare self yeah. welfare system. We didn't get a socialized, properly socialized welfare system until the nineteen eighties. That's the yeah. result of a, of a of of this the accord, the turning point in Labor's power. Which is another really interesting story because that really effectively means that welfare rises at the same time period as neoliberalism does, which. It's a really interesting story. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I think I think that point is is kind of like super fascinating. I think the other thing that needs to be mentioned and tied to it as well is that mm. the, the history of arbitration is also profoundly bound up in the history of the white Australia policy too. Oh, yes, yes. You know, the, the, this class deal between capital and labour was premised on the exclusion of non-white labour. Yeah, yeah, around purely kind of learned this economical argument. Mm. Yeah, the thing. So white Australia was a racist policy framed in economic terms. Yeah. It was framed as like, we need to protect white Australian wages. We need to yeah. protect... It wasn't even framed as like, you know, the idea of it being the white Australia policy was, was not even so much as like a radical, like, this is what we stand for, but just a matter of factness. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're white. Yeah. You have waiters, wages, let's keep it that way. Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, like I, a couple of shows ago, I um, quoted that quote from Power Without Glory by Frank, by Frank, by Frank Hardy, where he basically yeah. summarises, you know, the politics of the early labour movement at that time as being arbitration of the white Australia policy. And I think maybe um, a ban on Sunday drinking or something like that was the third element, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, and of course, obviously since we're dealing with it so briefly, the other important point is that the struggle against this, you know, this wasn't all that was going on. There were very proud and brave people that we should remember who were struggling for a real independent class politics and an an internationalism against racism too. Yeah, definitely. All right, but um, what about the fight against penalty rates? Let's start, let's have a bit of a chat about that, about the changes to penalty rates. Let's let's talk about that. So I, I went to the March 9 rally. Yeah, cool. So um, I think the thing that I was thinking, though, is that the day before the March 9 rally, there was, of course, also, um, as part of the Big Step campaign, uh, a form of strike. It was a strike, I think, um, on International Women's Day by workers in childcare. Yeah, which, you know, uh, yeah you, you know, do, you, do you know much about it? 
Not, not really. Insofar as this is the latest attempt in a series of kind of small strikes that they've mm. waved, and they've engaged in some kind of like historically interesting activity, like chaining themselves to the front of sort of various, uh, you know, arbitration offices, in the mm. same way that that workers, the women workers, did in the late nineteen sixties. Yeah, demand equal wages. Like Zelda Dauphinau famously chained herself to the I think front of, front of Melbourne Trades Hall. Mm. You know, so there's some interesting. All of this is caught up deeply in history. Yeah. Because often the trade union movements have nothing to reflect on but their history. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. But, I, I think it's, it's great, right? Like, you know, that we're, that we're talking about an industry that receives like $9 billion of subsidy, yet the workers yeah. uh, still have incredibly low conditions where yeah. there's a press on for more yeah. and more people to participate mm. in the labour force so someone's got to look after little kids right. um, and a constant kind of like push to devalue their work. You know, the Productivity Commission has basically argued that you know, the way that you make childcare cheaper is you say that people don't have to be as skilled, yeah. you know. So so that that's really great. And I think that some kind of sets the scene like the day before this, you know, this bubble that's going on. But look, I went to the rally. So the, the rally was 10 o'clock uh, in the morning. As far as I could tell, it was, it was mainly spearheaded by the CFMEU. And this had happened all around all around the country, so I guess like ten o'clock is probably close to lunchtime for people who start on yeah, yeah building sites at six o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast there might have been might have, must have been maybe like five thousand people mm-hmm. who were there. Um, the the vast majority of them were CFMEU workers who were with their work crews who mm-hmm. had gone on strike had had come off the site and shut down work. Um, and so they were with their work. And then the rest of people there, I think, were either officials or mm-hmm. individuals like me who had some kind of kind of political motivation who took, took a lunch break. So yeah. um, Annie, friend of the show, made uh, a joke about if the CFMEU's backs are sore from carrying the labour movement. Yeah, you know, yeah. like if you if you took away the CFMEU, there would have been maybe two or three hundred officials. Yeah. Um, in term, like in terms of the speeches, from what I could hear, really interesting. Where there was a really strong anti-Pauline Hanson line. Yeah. But the line was framed very much in terms of like you can't trust Pauline Hanson because she's voted for the Liberals with the Liberals. Um, so Matt, I think it was either Max or Alex on social media. May probably I think it was actually Max um, made a comment about like you know it wasn't even like that that old line of racism divides the working class. Yeah, it was more, but it's still great, right? In terms of very yeah. strong anti hanser position, yeah. um, there was a lot of talk about needing to fight and kind of like a broad left social democratic position that they were not just fighting for themselves against the ABCC, mm. but also penalty rates, the Centrelink debt fiasco, tax to pensions, mm. um, those kind of things. Mm. But there was no, you didn't get any kind of inkling of strategy, right? Like. Um, no all really like given an invite to participate and then like I guess like a lot of people I had like signed up online to be part of the battle and then pretty much you know a few hours maybe or maybe the evening after the rallies had finished Mm. like I got this text message from the union movement and the text message kind of linked to this really kind of interesting um, internet architecture where you could send a message to your local club and ask your local club if mm. um, they were going to cut penalty rates. 
Yeah. And then you were meant to feed that message back to the trade union structure. Yeah. But it's beyond, like interesting data gatherings. <laughs> well, it is. It's, it is. But it's also this kind of the thing that I think that you're kind of seeing is this kind of reg. Like, so that's, you know, sign up one week, it's sign a petition. Next week, it's send an email. So there's this kind of like social media connected level of participation. But at no point is there a moment where it's like, okay, now here's a public meeting. No. You know, like, or, or... I do public meetings anymore, Dave. We just, you know, talk on Facebook. It's fine. <laughs> but, but, it, but so, so that, that's a real problem, right? Like, in, Yeah, no, totally. Because, I mean, there's no decision-making. There's no, like, you know, this is, like, only the CFMEU really has the capacity to create a social movement out of nothing. It's, mm-hmm. like, we just call their blokes, and it is largely blokes off the work sites. I, I think I, I think anecdotally, um, from just want to say there are um, there are more women mm. working on building sites and in the same yeah, well, yeah, in the part. Like it's it's a, like the, it's interesting, right? Because you know the, what, what do you see? You see like that people are there with their workmates, and that there's a distinct kind of rebellious CFMEU style, if that makes sense. Like right. there's like an effective thing. There's a kind of deportment. Um, mm. People have, but the, but the the building site workforce is more diverse than the right often want to paint them to be. Oh, totally. Um, but it, but it's really unclear what happens next, right? Like I think the cynic amongst me would say, really, what this is about is it's going to be funneled towards an ALP election campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think that's cynical. I think that's just realistic. I mean, and the the, the Pauline Hanson, like obviously, this is before the election. Um, in Western Australia. In Western Australia. So part of this would have been a build up and seeing this, you know, seeing this state election in Western Australia as like a reflection on federal politics. Mm-hmm. If Pauline gets smashed, which she did, um, then that is a clear sign, you know, that the Liberal One Nation Coalition mm. is like, what? Fundamentally, you know, so it is tied out, it's already tied into electoralism. Yeah. Even if there's no federal campaign. You know? But but you can see that that's where they're going. But also the thing that is like as you mentioned before that is so freaking ridiculous is mm. um, is that you know what, what the right has been able to do mm. is been able to point out that the trade unions and you know and have already signed off on these enterprise bargaining agreements for huge yeah. players. Yeah. Um, which have pay rates lower than what the penalty rate cut is going to be. That's what the Daily Telegraph was leading with today. Yeah. So, yeah. like, like the, the thing that one of the things that strikes me is just fucking unbelievable is the, the incompetence of, like, the Labor Party machinery, right? So, yeah. you know, one of the first people they pull on stage is, is an example of worker that will lose money yeah. is, like, some young ALP, a pat apparatchik who works at Coles or somewhere like that as a member of the SDA and then it's revealed that he's already on an enterprise bargaining agreement that the SDA sold that yeah. is, a, is of a lower payment um, well I mean the way that it is yeah because like Coles already employs is like one of the biggest growing employer in Australia right mm-hmm. um, they already have these, these, these massive agreements right and you know so for the Labor Party to be saying this is like huge and epoch making, it really just shows, I guess, 
how much they want to really be able to claw this to make this relatively minor adjustment, which does have real effects on people. Don't get me wrong, it does have real mm-hmm. effects on people with relatively minor adjustment of a few awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to paint this as a responsibility of the Liberals mm-hmm. for electioneering purposes, and obviously the Liberals want to step away from it as quickly as they can. Yeah. Get, just get away from it, you know? So I think there's two different things that are going on that are, um, that are, that are quite interesting with this decision. But yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what effect it will have overall. Yeah, and whether yeah. this is the start of a broader push, as I said, for some sort of, you know, like attack on the industrial relations system. Whether you can see the ABCC is connected into to this decision, mm. for example. I'm not sure if you can say that. And you know, the Union Trade Union Royal Commission mm-hmm. that far, but basically the big, the big scalp. The mm-hmm. trade world, Michael Ravbar, head of I think national president maybe of the CFMU. Mm-hmm. Can I charge him with any of the stuff they've brought up against him? So it's like, I don't think anyone's going to get prosecuted out of this whole out of the yeah. trade world commission. I think the person who's received the most charges is who's the former head of the health secretaries union. Yeah, who was the body was the health health but, services union? Who was, was their star witness? Right. <laughs> um, my, I think this like for me, it also this also tracks onto another thing that's really interesting is, you know, how the state actually functions for capital and its capacity to plan for capital. Because everyone, as you know, we mentioned wage growth is really low and everyone is talking about this being a problem. Yeah. Right? So you have this really strange situation where wage growth is stagnating mm. or, you know, this is one of the contradictions of capital in the sense that every single employee employer would like to pay their workers nothing and have everyone else's workers be millionaires, right? So, yeah. like, on one hand, individual firms, they want to, you know, increase their exploitation by lowering wages, but they have to sell products, so they need demand. Yeah. And, you know, I think this contradiction probably expresses itself the most is in kind of, um, you know, it's the rising house prices and rising debt, which everyone is panicking about because yeah. it's just at such extraordinary fucking levels. Um, mm. And I guess, like, for the thinking of the state... Like, because they are trapped in ideology like everyone else is, that the ideology of kind of marginalism says, well, people's wages reflect their productivity. Mm. So if you have, if capital has more money, they can spend more on technology, that will increase productivity because Mm. the ratio of workers to machinery, the machinery will increase. And because now the workers are more productive, they will get higher wages. So, like, which is crazy. Like, there's absolutely no relationship in Australia between wages and prof, prof and productivity. But there's no relation to reality, right? Like, no <laughs> one has ever been paid more because they've suddenly been able to work harder, right? Like, yeah, on a, on an ongoing sustain. But uh, in terms of the tax cuts, that's the logic behind it. The interesting thing to point out as well is, of course, the Labor Party subscribes to this, but rather than tax cuts, they talk about training. They say if we train people and we make them more productive, then their wages will rise. That's so right. I think this is the kind of bind that they're that mm. you know that they're in, which is like how do you make companies more profitable and simultaneously um, mm. you, you know increase wages? How do we get this formula right? There has yeah. been a big upkick in Australian corporate profits just basically because the price of commodities rose again, but that's another thing. Yeah, but the thing as well, I guess, is that in this, if we're talking about this discussion about work and mm. exploitation and productivity and whatnot, is the way that, you know, Dina Tarley, 
generally a terrible person, Green's leader, mm. has come up with this. He's taught, now talking about the four-day week and the six-hour day and mm-hmm. all this stuff. So this is another thing that gets kind of thrown into the mix here um, where, you know, like on the one hand, the Labour Party is like selling Manus in her present in her 7.30 interview. Um, it's like the key concerns of the trade union movement are good wages and secure work. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you're not going to have either of those. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just not what capital's in, into at the moment. Yeah. You know, like the best you can hope for is probably something closer to what Dina Tal is talking about, which she actually said was also an interesting idea, but then conflicted herself. You know, yeah. so I, 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 secure, you know, basically secure white male breadwinner wages, which is kind of the way the trade union, even though they, they talk about it in a whole bunch of different ways now, it's the same rhetoric. Yeah, okay, a lot here, right? Like, um. Yeah. You know, I I don't know. I'm pretty sure that I was in a meeting with Sally McManus maybe like 20 years ago involving yeah. maybe a call centre publication called On Call. Oh, but yeah. I haven't really like followed her factional history, so I don't really know what's happened that's facilitated her rise to the head of the ACTU. I don't really know her politics and I don't really know where she sits or anything like that. Yeah. And I thought that's kind of interesting because if there has been like a faction fight in the unions, the yeah. membership just doesn't see it, right? And I think that's a relatively, historically a relatively new development as well because our participation is so unimportant for the trade union structure. We're not involved in its internal debates. No. Um, I guess like the, the thing that is interesting, of course, is she made this comment, which was, it is sometimes right to break the law. Yeah, totally. It's and, a statement of obvious fact. Well, it is a statement of obvious fact, but it's also outside what you're allowed to say. So yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's people can, can kind of oversell that as suddenly going, oh, my God, this is the rebirth or the original birth of the militant class movement that we've all wanted. Sally McManus is somehow just going to manifest it. Um, yeah. Now that but, she said you can break the law, every, you know, staid right-wing union bureaucrat is going to go out and start throwing Molotov cocktails. <laughs> That's true. Um, but the thing that, you know, um, that um, Mike, like, you're right there, John? Yep. Yeah, that um, Michael, friend of the show, um, mm. made a point on social media was that, you know, he felt in terms of how he could talk in his workplace mm. about industrial relations and struggle had mm. shifted because of Sally McManus's comment. Okay, well, that's interesting. Like, so I think that that's hard to get that kind of right. Like, you know, I think mm. you can be, obviously don't expect too much from the trade unions, but, you know, mm. this, this capacity to kind of intervene on the ideological sphere yeah. can have a, a contribution to yeah. how we recompose our power. This like, is interesting, yeah, because in the context of, like, what did Campbell Newman come out two days ago? Did you see this? No, I didn't. He said, pretty much, he said that, you know, the left were now, the left have all of the, you know, um, the impetus behind them, you know, oh, wow, like trade union movements, you know, the power of trade union movements, social movements, you know, mm-hmm. now the left controls the narrative and the right has just to let itself kind of mm-hmm. splinter and decay. And this is part of, like, a general sort of sense some people like Corey Robin who talk about that, you know, reactionaries are just kind of really in love with the left organization, yeah. which that they were as cool. <laughs> oh, that, that's sad, isn't it? It's, it's really sad. Um, the left is just terrible. Uh, G- yeah. <laughs> Jim Casey, who's like a former head of the yeah. New South Wales yeah. firefighters, had a column in New, New Matilda that was really interesting. Oh, cool. Where yeah. he, he was basically saying, look, people break the law all the time. You know, in, in terms of polit- no, well, not just in terms of criminal activity, but in terms of political activity, he was celebrating that, right? And I think that's right. Um, and he said, "What is interesting is that an ACTU uh, secretary has said it, 
Yeah, and that's right. It opens up the terrain of possibility. You know, it's what you can say and what you can't say. It's how hegemony works, right? If you say, if someone like her can say that, then that means that that opens up a wider possibility of what people below her can then say. And I also think there has been like a creeping kind of criminalization of protest. Oh, definitely. You know, where like in the past, like in the past, there was an element of kind of like argy bargy, for lack of a better term. that was just kind of seen as part of what happens on the street. But now, you know, there's this plan in Victoria to criminalise people wearing masks, right? Mm. You know, like that's... It was like racialized as well in the context of like the Law and Order campaign. Mm. That's and they were against Somali immigrants. Oh, part of this kind of racist apex gang. Yeah, like yeah. Yeah, Kieran, friend of the show, is... Um, He's written some interesting stuff about that, and we can... Um, mm, let's link to that. Talk about it. Yeah. So, look, John, it's getting beyond your bedtime. It is. I want to go to sleep, man. So, anything that we need to cover on, on this? Or, we're going to see to wrap it up. Um, yeah. I, there's a lot in it, I think. Um, look, I, I, I'm kind, I guess I'm kind of interested in, um, in if... So, so, first of all, a plug... So on the weekend, or so on uh, Saturday, April the twenty second, at two thirty, there's going to be a community meeting around the struggle against penalty rates, the ABC Centrelink, um, the ABCC and the Centrelink scandals, mm-hmm. and currently that's planned to be at Common House um, at seventy four B Wickham Street, Fortitude Valley, but that might change and stay tuned for updates in relationship to that. There should be more. And that's an attempt of comrades to get together to try to build something in a space outside of, um, yeah, you know. Bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. Exa- exactly. But I, don't, I think, you know, uh, like it's one swallow doesn't make spring, but there's like in some ways I guess like maybe the penalty rates decision in itself, obviously fucked for a lot of people, yeah, yeah. isn't the only, is, is, you know, maybe the issue isn't the issue. Maybe this is a way that people are starting to articulate all the antagonism about kind of stagnating wages. And I guess the other thing that's talking about as well is underemployment too. Because unemployment hasn't particularly grown in Australia, but the proportion of people who are considered underemployed has. And they're also located in these industries too. Industries often mainly stuffed stuffed by women, young people, migrants. Yeah. You know, like if we talk about um, like United Voices decision, you know, to 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 call a strike about childcare wages, you know, the people who get paid on award wages mm. in industries that are you know overwhelmingly female. Yeah, but you have more women in the industry, the more likely it is you actually get paid on the award rather than at some above award rate, like CFMEU, whatever. They can fight and they can have like amazing pay packets for their mm. members, you know, but. It's in those female-dominated sectors, like in retail, like in childcare, where yes. people are paid only on the award or less, right? Or, you know, all they get fucking paid the award. And also that difficulty thing in terms of like feminized work, particularly in, in the care industry, where like how do you struggle when yeah. the object of your of your work is looking after little children? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like or like increasingly the elderly as well. Yeah, or looking at like or yeah. or in hospitals, right? These are the kind of challenges that these workers are exploring. So I don't know if you know this is starting to be the cusp of something more interesting. Obviously, that's not an automatic process, but there does seem to be a number of these kind of bubbles that are going on. Um, that that like are in themselves like it like so the rally. 
Mm. You know, like on one hand, you know, really easy to have a kind of critique of the of the rally, but like the the CUB fifty, mm. however many people rallied last year, it's more remarkable than what normally happens in Brisbane on a Thursday at ten o'clock. No, that's right. You yeah. know, like like it interrupts the coffee, the traditional coffee break. Yeah, <laughs> but the, well, I guess it didn't inter- interrupt the coffee break, and this is, I guess, yeah. one part of it where like the workers who are directly affected by yeah. the penalty rate cuts weren't there. So that well, kind of interesting thing. You got this kind of weird vanguardism on the part of the of the CFMEU, which you don't have time to explore. But, uh, but yeah, I, yeah, which I think you know they have to because they're under attack and they're you know needing to make a broader common class front. But also, yeah. what, how challenging that really is that the heterogeneous nature of the class in Australia isn't mm-hmm. something that can just be willed away. But no, we'll, and you know we will have to work out a form of organising to respond to it. That's right, yeah. The abolition of the of capitalism is the work of the working class itself. The abolition of class is the work of the class and you need to figure out what the class is doing. But but you need a good night's sleep to do that. You do, so I'm going to go do that. All right. Thanks, um, Dave. Yeah, look, um, I hope Pete listeners have enjoyed the show. Please okay. feel to tweet at us. I'm not even sure what when our next show is going to be on. Uh, maybe we'll even, like, maybe we'll listen to our listeners. We might. Crowdsource for sure. Yeah, or just just steam we'll it. Or something and, and text me furiously about it. We'll find out. All right. Let's find out. All right. Okay. okay. Well, thanks, John. You have a good night. Thanks for listening to Living the Dream. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.